This episode of Diffusion Science Radio was first broadcast on the 24th of June, 2013. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we steal secrets, talk about squirrels, dim creativity and crowdsource SETI. But first up, here's the news. Phoning ET gets crowdfunding. Loan Signal is open for business, and its business is taking any message you want and sending that by radio into space. In hope that aliens will receive your message, Loan Signal will use the Jamesburg Earth Station radio dish in Carmel Valley, California, that was constructed in 1968 to support the 1969 Apollo 11 moon landing. In addition to the messages from customers, Lone Signal will beam a hailing message, developed by astronomer Michael Bush, designed to be easy to decode by alien civilization, despite being in ones and zeros. The hailing message will be on one frequency to attract attention, and the individual messages will be on a nearby frequency. To start with, Lone Signal will continuously point at Gliese 526, a red dwarf star only 18 light years from Earth that's known to have planets that might in the Goldilocks habitable zone of the star, where it's not too hot and not too cold for life. The idea is to beam a continuous signal, rather than just one burst, to increase the chances of someone detecting the message. Lone signal may be pointed at other potentially inhabited targets in the future. For a light bulb moment, turn down the lights. io9.com reports that scientists from the University of Stuttgart and the University of Hohenheim tested people's creativity by asking them to draw aliens while they were sitting in differently lighted rooms. People were instructed to imagine going to another galaxy in the universe and visiting a planet very different from Earth. And then they were asked to spend seven minutes drawing a picture of an alien creature that's local to this planet. Participants were given a blank sheet of paper in which they were to draw the aliens they encounter. The drawings were assessed in terms of overall creativity, similarity to Earth creatures, and atypicality, the differenceness of features. Overall creativity was measured on a scale of 1 to 5. Similarity to Earth creatures was measured by how similar the aliens were to Earth creatures, the extent to which participants took general Earth animals into account when making their drawings, the number of atypicalities was assessed on five items referring to sensory organs and on four items referring to body features. Sensory organs and body features were considered atypical if one, they were lacking, say, eyes and legs. Two, had atypical numbers, say, five legs. Three, demonstrated an unknown configuration, say, legs connected to the head. 
4 had an uncommon function, say nutrition, through the legs. Additionally, sensory organs were considered atypical if 5 they had an uncommon ability, say x-ray eyes. Test subjects were asked to problem solve and draw aliens under a variety of lighting conditions in a typical classroom setting. Some students were asked to problem solve in dim light of 150 lux, others in neutral light, 500 lux, the recommended lighting level for office work, others still in bright light, 1500 lux. In additional studies, test subjects were primed to merely think about lighting conditions prior to problem solving by having them describe a situation in which they'd either been in a bright or a dark location. Not only did the test subjects working in dim lighting conditions demonstrate improved creative performance, but those primed to merely think about darkness also improved. An extra study wherein test subjects were asked to rate how they perceive themselves during creative tasks found darkness, real or imaginary, inspired feelings of freedom, self-determination and reduced inhibition. With two exceptions. In a follow-up experiment, the researchers employed upright floor lamps to provide indirect, non-uniform light, instead of the direct, uniform overhead lighting used in previous trials. In this new setting, there was no significant effect observed on perceived freedom from constraints and the darkness-related increase in creativity disappeared. Although idea generation is seen as a core step in creative achievement, write the researchers, innovation also requires the evaluation of ideas. So different stages require different mental skill sets. To test this assumption, the researchers had participants perform creativity tasks and analytical thinking tasks in a variety of lighting environments. As expected, creativity flourished in dim conditions relative to lit ones, but analytical performance was best in a brightly lit room. The key to maximising innovation then, from the perspective of interior lighting, appears to be adaptive lighting that can change according to the task at hand. After all, creativity may begin in the dark, but it shouldn't end there, say the researchers. The paper, Freedom from Constraints, Darkness and Dim Illumination Promote Creativity, was published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology. For some people, space really is the final frontier. The ashes of writer and inventor Arthur C. Clarke, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek and Andromeda, and actor James Doon, who played Scotty on Star Trek, will be shot into space on a NASA solar sail being launched by SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket in 2014. Solar sails are spacecraft propelled by a giant sail of a thin reflective material that's pushed by the pressure of sunlight. They were invented by Arthur C. Clarke in his short story, Sun Jammers. The giant 1200 square metre sail will unfurl in space to catch the sunlight. It'll be the biggest solar sail launched so far, and it'll also be the lightest. A force of 0.01 newtons will push the craft, where 0.01 newtons is a force needed to lift the weight of a small packet of sugar on Earth, or artificial sweetener if you prefer. The craft will be propellant free. Look ma, no rockets. The craft will be aiming for a point 3 million kilometres from Earth, pushed along by the pressure of light from the sun. Sunjammer will host instruments for observing the sun.
Last night, I saw a sneak preview of the Universal Pictures movie We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks. But the film's not really about WikiLeaks and the crimes that it uncovered, as there's very little focus on those. Instead, the film focuses on the personality and character of Julian Assange and Bradley Manning, painting them as bad and mad, respectively. Two-thirds of the way through the film, the former head spy of the NSA says, we steal secrets from other countries. The government spies steal secrets, whereas WikiLeaks accepts documents about crimes from people of conscience through an electronic mailbox that's encrypted so that WikiLeaks can't reveal who leaked the evidence, because they genuinely don't know. It's central to how WikiLeaks works that they never directly speak with their sources. Yet Alex Gibney, the director, as the narrator, calls Assange a liar for saying this. A whole two and a half hours about WikiLeaks and Alex Gibney doesn't understand or willfully calls into doubt the first basic fact of WikiLeaks is its anonymous dead drop system. To someone who's followed the story from the start and read deeply about all the events and the players, the film shows some seriously misleading half-truths and untruths that seem to suit an agenda. One of the most important points about this film is that nobody from within WikiLeaks cooperated with the director. So the interviews that aren't anti-WikiLeaks are all from other films or TV shows. It's secondhand footage. Instead, WikiLeaks chose an exclusive deal with another filmmaker, Oscar-nominated Laura Poitras. Her film will be out later this year, and it's less likely to have misinformation, because she spoke with people who work in WikiLeaks. The film opens with footage and photos from the 1980s of the Wankworm attack on NASA computers that was documented in Sulet Draper's book Underground. W-A-N-K stood for Worms Against Nuclear Killers, because NASA was launching plutonium, and people were upset. The film shows video of the computer screens showing File Deleted 1, File Deleted 2, and so on, and the worried NASA engineers. But it doesn't deliver the punchline that no files were actually deleted, and the whole thing was an elaborate practical joke. They show that the wank hackers used a midnight oil song, and then show Julian Assange quoting the line from the song, out of context, from a documentary about the book Underground. It felt like watching a creationist film, where they edit the film to make it look like Carl Sagan and Isaac Asimov support religious creation stories over science. They use this quote to strongly suggest that Assange was the wank hacker, despite the fact that the police were never able to trace the wank worm to any individual or group. Anyone in the world who's heard Peter Garrett sing could be guilty. I suppose it works better in America, where they're often given the view that Australia has only 20 people, rather than over 20 million. Bizarrely, they also showed footage of video from Australian TV in the 1980s that overhyped the scariness of 1980s hacking and how it was worse than axe-murdering. What only the book Underground reports is that the NASA computers were broken into because they had the passwords set to the usernames. They may as well have had no security at all. The film reveals that Assange's teenage online pseudonym was Supreme Mandax, and then totally misses the point that it's a typical hacker's self-referential joke. In Latin, it means nobly untrue which any computer handle that protects your anonymity by not using your real name must be. 
The noble untruth is in the name itself as a pseudonym, not as a self-description of Assange. GNU Linux is called that because GNU stands for GNU's not Unix, and the software that lets you run Windows programs in Linux is called Wine, W-I-N-E, which stands for Wine is not an emulator. In the film, Alex Gibney focuses on the untrue Mendax part to make out that Assange was a self-confessed liar 20 years ago, rather than a programmer with a classics education and a sense of humour. This is laboured over during the whole two and a half hours of the film, right up to the end, in a way that, like the creationist films, shows that it was made by someone who knew that they were twisting the truth. Gibney states that the judge at the teenage Assange's trial 20 years ago recommended leniency because of a troubled childhood. But the actual court records showed that the leniency was because Assange didn't do any damage in the hacking exploits he was charged with. The film features extensive interviews with Adrian Lamo, whose testimony was the only evidence against Bradley Manning until he recently pleaded guilty to some of the charges against him. Lamo was blatantly drugged to the eyeballs in every scene he appeared in. Director and narrator Alex Gibney tells us that Lamo had been in hospital for Asperger's syndrome. Lamo had a history of crime, drug addiction, mental illness, and working as a government informant. He overdosed on prescription amphetamines, and an ex-girlfriend reports that he used a stun gun on her, and that he carries one at all times. He was convicted of breaking into several large companies' computers, including the New York Times. And then his associate, who's an editor at Wired magazine, would contact the companies to tell them and offer Lamo's cooperation in fixing the security flaws. And then he'd go off and get paid to write about it for a security magazine. What a scam! At the time the chat logs were supposedly recorded, Lamo had just been discharged from nine days of involuntary psychiatric confinement after his antidepressant drugs were stolen and it behaved strangely in front of a policeman. This is not in the film. It was originally three days as per the law for people who are believed to be a danger to themselves and society, but after three days the hospital decided to extend his stay for another six days. He claims in the film he was diagnosed only with Asperger's syndrome. Even in America, people are generally not put in involuntary psychiatric confinement for having Asperger's syndrome. Any policeman who saw Lamo speak the way he does in this film and didn't suspect he was on drugs or suffering some sort of episode would not be doing his duty. The film shows us a dramatised animation of the chat logs between Lamo and Manning appearing character by character on the screen and never questions how accurate they are. Text files are notoriously easy to change, yet they're relied upon as the only source. The first contact between Adrian Lamo and Bradley Manning historically were encrypted emails. Yet not only has Lamo never released these emails, but the film presents snippets of the chat logs as if Manning is contacting Lamo on the AOL instant messaging service for the first time of his own accord, rather than the historical facts that he was led there by Lamo after the emails. I can't believe these chat logs and their presentation are accurate. To me, they look like the sort of thing Lamo's counterintelligence handlers put together. Yet in the film, they're the only words from Bradley Manning to describe himself. The pre-trial transcripts of Bradley Manning's testimony give a very different picture of the man, but they weren't used. The film shows Lamo promising Manning that he can offer him legal protection for confessions as a legally ordained priest 
and as a professional journalist. At the same time, he's reporting to his regular army counterintelligence contact. In the film, Lamo says he reluctantly betrayed Manning's confidence because of the people who would die if he didn't warn the government. However, not shown in the film are Lamo's public statements that he never saw any evidence in any of the leaked material that would have caused harm to America's national security. In the film, Lamo says he acted to stop any further leaks, but his chat logs show that Manning told him that he'd already lost all access by the time they were chatting. In short, the film lets Lamo frame himself as a reluctant moral hero, when the facts show he was following his history of informing on people followed by massive media coverage because he's addicted to being famous. What's missing is why Manning contacted Lamo in the first place. It doesn't seem to make sense, and as an audience, we'd really like to know. Alex Gibney distracts us from Manning's account of why he leaked the documents by giving a caricature of Manning's sexuality. To lead us into discounting his statements, which explain his moral reasons for revealing war crimes, and substituting instead this story of a crazy gay guy. The film shows the back and forth about the collateral murder video being classified and not classified at the same time. Gibney states that they were classified, but his on-screen sources say it wasn't. Except for the ones that say it was. When the film goes into Bradley Manning's blatant torture and illegal imprisonment for three years by the American government without any due process, their military expert regrets the punishment because it makes Manning look like a sympathetic character, rather than because it's morally and legally wrong. In fact, all the people actually interviewed for the film come across as anti-WikiLeaks, as if the director hadn't spoken to any supporters. Gibney claims in the film that Assange demanded $1 million for appearing in the commercial film, which Assange denies. Gibney doesn't show this denial and offers no evidence of this Dr. Evil behaviour. At the times he deals with the actual working WikiLeaks, when they collaborate with journalists from big-name newspapers, when they carefully remove the names of people who might be hurt by the leaks, Gibney shows interviews with people who don't quite tell the truth about what happened. He shows a clip that says that Assange reluctantly worked with the newspapers for collateral murder, when in reality he'd been working with them for years on other stories. The film shows Nick Davies saying Assange had to be persuaded that civilians who helped US forces didn't deserve to die. When Nick Davies wasn't at the meeting, and the people who were there have signed statements saying that Assange said no such thing. Gibney continues to use these people who historically couldn't have direct information on the situations they report on because they weren't there. There are also clips from people reporting things that are immediately contradicted by the video footage that follows, which is a pretty strange way to run a film. Why would you show someone complaining that Assange had overslept as he always does and then show a clip that shows Assange staying up all night and that he'd gone without any sleep? Why ask historian Robert Mann about Assange's character when he's never met him? Why interview Daniel Domscheit Berg, who was caught sabotaging WikiLeaks mail servers, without ever mentioning that fact? The film goes into the rape allegations by interviewing Anna, one of the two women involved. They show a torn condom, but Alex Gibney fails to report 
that Assange's DNA was not found in the condom. Gibney also fails to show that both women state that they weren't raped, which is kind of importance to the story. It's unique for a rape case in which there's no DNA, and the women say they weren't raped, for the person accused by the police to be chased internationally without any charges. What the women actually wanted was for the police to force Assange to have an HIV test, which would only have made sense before they'd had unprotected sex with him. After unprotected sex, it would only make sense for them to have themselves tested for any sexually transmitted diseases they were worried about. The film misses the fact that Assange agreed to have the test anyway, before the women went to the police, but of course they went there for advice anyway. He also leaves out that Anna blogged about seven steps to legal revenge before she went to the police, that Anna's a Swedish politician, and that Sweden has really weird sexual politics. The film struck me as a deliberately manipulative pro-criminal anti-WikiLeaks propaganda piece aimed at the American market. An appropriate title for a movie telling the story of WikiLeaks should have substituted the word crimes for secrets and the word reveal for steal. Thus it would have been We Reveal Crimes, the story of WikiLeaks. This film is selectively edited like a creationist film. Remember that when you see it. WikiLeaks have posted a transcript for We Steal Secrets, annotated with comments about where they disagree with the reports presented, and with links to their source materials for proof. I'll throw a link to the transcript on diffusionradio.com. I give the film two stars for commercial slickness beyond the dreams of creationists. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com that's science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And from the 20 kilobit archives, Tim Baines tells us about hibernating squirrels. Did you know that during eight months of hibernation, the sick, sick squirrel of Alaska can allow its body temperature to drop down to minus six degrees Celsius. After fattening themselves up during the summer, these little critters tuck into their burrows about half a metre into the ground sometime in late August. Apart from the occasional wander for bladder relief, they stay down there until next May. And amazingly, during that whole time, they don't eat. Brian Barnes is a biologist at the University of Alaska who has been trying to understand and perhaps tap into the squirrel's unusual ability to hibernate at below freezing temperatures. He believes the 6-6 secret could hold medical solutions for preserving donor organs and helping car crash victims stay alive until medical help comes along. In hibernation, the rate of blood flow to the squirrel brain drops down to just a few percent of normal, but when they warm up again, they have no brain damage. In fact, all of their organs are in working order. So what's the secret? Well, Barnes's research shows the rather chubby arctic squirrel does this by supercooling its blood. You can supercool water by, say, filling a test tube and then slowly freezing it. If the water is kept very still, it can stay liquid even when the temperature drops below freezing. But 
the water will instantly freeze if disturbed or if contaminated by any particle that might act as a starting point where ice could form. Now, if that happened to the squirrel while it was hibernating, you'd have some kind of homogenous rodent paddle pop, but it doesn't. Barnes believes it is a combination of chemicals in the 6-6 squirrel's blood that keeps it well away from this precarious near-frozen state, allowing for a less sensitive form of supercooling. If you can find out what these chemicals are, one potential use is as some sort of stasis injection that could be given to victims of severe accidents in order to extend the time the victim is alive before emergency medical treatment can arrive. The same treatment might also allow astronauts to remain in a suspended state requiring little food or water during many year voyages to distant planets. That was Tim Baines on the wonders of hibernation from squirrels to astronauts. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And do send us an email so we know you're listening and tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Contributing from the 20 kilobit archives was Tim Baines. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.